Welcome, everyone, to the first in uh, this season's Jewish History lecture series, the Vilna Gaon and the Battle Against Hasidism, sponsored tonight's lecture, is sponsored by Robert Zeller and Nadine Gerson. They're here. It's in memory of Nadine's grandmother, Evelyn Gershman, Chava Aleha Shalom, who was actually born in Vilna. So thank you so much for sponsoring tonight's lecture. I want to begin with a letter. On Rosh Chodesh Iyar, very soon after Pesach, in 1772, a letter signed by the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Yob and Shlomo Zalman, also signed by the chief rabbi of Vilna, the Beisdin, 16 Dayanim, was sent to the chief rabbi of Breslitovsk. And in fact, Breslitovsk is better known to us as Brisk. His name was Rabbi Abraham Katzen Ellenbogen. His grandfather has featured in previous lectures that we've done. He was the chief rabbi of Hamburg before Rabbi Yonason Eberschitz, who was uh, the nemesis of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. We're going to mention them later on as well. But let me read you the salient parts of the letter that was sent by the Vilna Gaon in 1772. To our Jewish brethren, you surely already know of the information that our ancestors could never have dreamed of. That a sect of Chashudim, not Chasidim, Chashudim, you know what Chashudim means in Hebrew? Suspect ones has been formed who meet together in separate groups and deviate in their prayers from the text that everyone else uses. As far as they're concerned, they are great scholars and miracle workers. And whoever sits among them, even an ignorant fool who cannot say the Shema prayer, as soon as he joins them, he merits the best of this world and the best of the next world in less than an hour. Quite something, right? In the middle of the Shemona Esra prayer, they interject obnoxious alien words. By the way, when he says alien, he means Yiddish. In a very loud voice, and they conduct themselves like madmen. They explain their behavior by saying that in their thoughts they saw in the most far-off worlds. They don't study Torah at all, and they constantly emphasize that one should not waste too much time learning nor should anyone lament too much over any sin they may have committed. Other ugly deeds that they do have been fully described to us and verified by reliable witnesses. Unfortunately, in many places, they have succeeded in leading our youngsters astray. Every day is a holiday for them. When they pray, according to falsified texts, they make such a noise that the walls shake and they do somersaults. Here I have a slide with bullet points of the letter that was written by the Vilna Gaon in 1772. I have to say that reading his letter, it sounds like a lot of fun going to a Hasidic group. It doesn't sound so bad. In any event, he continues as follows. We therefore declare that every community leader should clothe themselves in clothing of zeal, a zeal for God, and do everything in their power to root out, to destroy, to outlaw, and to excommunicate them. Do not believe them, even if they raise their voices to beg you, for in their hearts they are disgusting. And here is the final quote from the letter. It's a longer letter. I put the text up there before in a flyer that was printed much later, but at the end he said as follows, as long as the Hasidim do not fully atone of their own accord, they must be scattered and driven away so that not even two of these heretics remains together. <coughs> the end of their groups and gatherings will be a blessing for the world. There is no question that the signatories to this letter, who included some of the most 
prominent rabbis of Vilna, possibly Lithuania, during that period, meant business. But why did they write it now? Why then? Why the Vilna Gaon? Why was the campaign against Hasidim so unsuccessful if it had so much firepower? Who were the Hasidim? And were the accusations true? And even if they were true, why were they so bad? The questions this letter raises need addressing, and it is this that I will attempt to do during the course of the lecture. First, let me share with you a short history of the origins of the Hasidic movement. In fact, the truth is, it's going to be fairly tough, because the origins of the Hasidic movement are shrouded in mystery. The founder of the movement was later promoted as a mystical miracle worker and a Kabbalist, and his name was Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, and he was born in an obscure town with just over 700 residents in western Ukraine, in Podolia, that time part of the Polish Empire, called Okopi. At the time, more than 150 Okopi residents were Jewish, and the community was relatively wealthy and successful. I say relative because I'm imagining that area that being wealthy and successful didn't require too much. We know this. How do we know that they were successful? Because Rabbi Yisrael Bar Shem Tov was born in 1698, but was orphaned soon afterwards, and the local community took care of him. That means they clothed him, they schooled him, and they fed him. Although, actually, we don't know for sure that he was born in Okopi at all. Maybe he was born in Tlust, 50 miles away from Okopi, and maybe it wasn't 1698, it was 1700. And as it happens, there's almost nothing that we can say for sure about the Baal Shem Tov during those early years, and even much about his later years cannot be said for sure. He emerged from complete obscurity, and besides for a few select <coughs> followers, the Baal Shem Tov remained <coughs> relatively obscure throughout his life. He did not come from a famous rabbinic or well-known wealthy Jewish family, and he was never the rabbi of a prominent or even lesser-known Jewish community. He did not correspond with the great rabbis of his day, nor did he publish any, of the, any books of Torah or original halachic material that one would expect a rabbi to write and publish during the course of his life, particularly a prominent rabbi. The first biography to be published about the Baal Shem Tov appeared more than 50 years after he died. And it was a gushing hagiography, full of strange, miraculous stories that sound too bizarre to be taken seriously. Truthfully, in his day, there were probably dozens, perhaps even hundreds of charismatic, unknown, parochial rabbis and spiritual mentors with their own groups of faithful followers and the innovative ideas about how to improve Jewish life. The rest are all forgotten. But the Baal Shem Tov has left an indelible mark on Jewish history, not least of which, of course, is that my wife Sabine and therefore my children are his direct descendants. And here I present you with a family tree. The Baal Shem Tov married very well. His wife's father was a wealthy businessman who appreciated Torah scholarship, and before he got married, the Baal Shem Tov was an itinerant, he wasn't very successful, he was an itinerant Jewish day school teacher. But after his wedding, he retreated to the Carpathian Mountains, where he earned money as a line digger. Please do not ask me what a line digger is, because I have no idea. And later on, he was a small-time innkeeper, although he spent a lot of time in study and spiritual contemplation. He also learned to use herbs and amulets to cure people and help them with medical conditions, gaining the name Baal Shem, Baal Shem Tov. That's why he had that name. He became known as a healer, and he was a sought-after person in an era where going to the doctor was like going to a murderer, and more likely to kill you than to cure you in those days. Eventually, he moved to the city which, with, with which he became synonymous, a place called Medjibush, probably in around 
1736, and he remained there for the rest of his life. It was only in Medjibush that he began to attract any kind of attention, although, to be clear, it was very limited, and he remained largely unnoticed. Just to give you some sense of the Baal Shem Tov's limited reach, I prepared for you an image of the exterior of the Baal Shem Tov's shul as it appeared in 1913 in Medjibush. That's the exterior of the shul. And here's an image of the interior of the Baal Shem Tov synagogue. I think that we can quite easily say that this is not a place where thousands of visited, visitors flocked from all over Europe to bask in the shadow of the Baal Shem Tov. Very small. I don't want you to think that by saying this, I'm in any way trying to diminish the Baal Shem Tov's greatness. I'm not a misnagid. It's not me. And of course, I have family loyalty. But the truth is, he lived in an era of very great rabbis, many of whom I've written about and spoken about, such as Rabbi Yaakov Yeshua Falk, the Pnei Yeshua, and the Rabbi Tzvi Ashkenazi, the Chacham Tzvi, and of course, we mentioned already, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbi Yonason Eberschitz, Rabbi Meir Eisenstadt, who was the Pony Meiros, for the Sephardim, Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar, the Orachaim, these were great rabbis who were, had world renown. They were known throughout the Jewish world in their day, during their lifetimes. They were celebrated, they were acclaimed across the Jewish world. But the Baal Shem Tov did not make that kind of impact. And had it not been for the spread of the Hasidic movement after he died, he might have remained obscure or been entirely forgotten. So what is it that the Baal Shem Tov started and how did his innovative ideas explode onto the scene in the latter years of the 18th century? Historians, I'll have you know, have been arguing about this for more than 150 years. And I don't want to presume to know better than the many eminent academics who have weighed in on this topic, but let me suggest the following. There are two kinds of revolution. One kind is based around a charismatic leader who emerges like a phoenix out of the ashes of disintegration, disappointment, discord, collapse, and misery. And he leads the masses in a revolution that revives their spirit and changes their world completely. That's one kind of revolution. In the Torah, we have Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, who led us out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and then on to the Promised Land. We have King David, who restored Jewish pride and Jewish territory. We have Judah Maccabee, who led a rebellion against the might of the Greek army. In modern secular history, we have a range of revolutionary figures, some good, some bad, who fit this particular mold of the radical but very charismatic revolutionary, Lenin, Gandhi, Mandela, Castro. But there's another kind of revolution that is not based around a charismatic personality. It is a slow-burning revolution of the masses that ultimately results in grassroots changes which defy pre-existing norms. We all witnessed such a revolution when just over 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall came down. There was no revolutionary leader encouraging anyone to tear down the wall. The world had changed, and the wall came down. The issue, the issue with Hasidim and Hasidism is that it is usually painted as the first kind of revolution, the brainchild of a charismatic leader who led a revolution of the masses. But actually, if you read between the lines, it was a revolution of the people. The world had changed. They wanted to tear down the Berlin Wall and reclaim Judaism for themselves. The Baal Shem Tov and his circle were a convenient lightning rod for the revolution that was already taking place. That is why the Baal Shem Tov's impact during his life is almost marginal to the real story, to the whole story, which was the wildfire success 
of Hasidism after he died. And that is why opposition to Hasidism never materialized during his lifetime, only emerging 12 years after he died, when the Hasidic revolution hit Vilna and the surrounding areas. So what is Hasidism? First, let me tell you what it isn't. Important to know what it isn't. The essence of Hasidism is not represented by the very structured, very conservative, very conformist Hasidic Jewish communities of Brooklyn and Jerusalem and anywhere else where you've come across Hasidim. At its essence, Hasidism is based on free-spiritedness and a certain kind of anarchy that rejects conventions. Its earliest practitioners embodied this ideal. The Baal Shem Tov wore ordinary clothes and mixed with ordinary people. Instead of set-piece and carefully scripted formal speeches to Talmudic scholars and rabbinic scholars, the Baal Shem Tov and his circle used Shabbat meals and other festive meals as an opportunity to share Torah with each other using a more freewheeling style and discussing esoteric concepts and the emotions behind religion rather than legal principles and co complex concepts that soared above the heads of the common man. As a result, Hasidism evolved into a movement that venerated its own leaders, not the rabbis of the town in which they lived. The people were looking for inspiration, not remote scholars. Hasidic leaders embodied spirituality. They were holy people, like Moses and King David, like the holy rabbis of the Talmud. And just like Moses, they had a closer connection to God and could pray to God on behalf of their followers. And as a result, Hasidic teachings cherished sincerity in their leaders over scholarship and holiness over Torah study, also because this meant that unlearned people could become equal to a scholar. Pray hard. Be sincere. Do mitzvahs. Devote yourself to a holy man, and you can soar to the greatest heights. These were all ideas that, of course, originated in Lurianic Kabbalah, the teachings of the Arizal, and his circle in Safed and Tzfat that we spoke about at my lecture last year. But rather than confining these ideas and ideals to small secretive groups of initiates, the Baal Shem Tov and his friends and students stressed that everyone, everybody, could embrace this system and shake up Judaism, giving a moribund religion that survived in a sea of Gentile hatred a new vitality, a new flavor, a fresh edge. The harsh, unforgiving Judaism of fire and brimstone was replaced by a Judaism marked by optimism, encouragement, joy, and fervor. Now, in the process, Hasidism added certain things to the required standards of ritual observance, while at the same time it relaxed others. Communal gatherings used singing and storytelling as forms of mystical devotion. In this way, Hasidism responded to the burning desire of the common people in the simple, stimulating and comforting faith it awakened in them. Scholars were also attracted to Hasidism, disappointed at the emptiness of pure intellectualism. They also wanted to learn selfless humility and simple sincerity from the common folk. And in reality, despite the cosmetic differences in rituals between Hasidism and non-Hasidism. Hasidism was never about ritual reform. It was really about a deep psychological change. It was not about changing the belief, but about changing the believer. The traditional commitment to Jewish study and scholarship was not abandoned, rather it was spiritualized. Learning Torah, just like praying, made you holy and brought you closer to God. When the Baal Shem Tov died in 1760, he left behind a small, 
but very committed group of disciples. Two of them would prove to be very important, as they were the ones who carried the revolution for the people, each in their own way. The first was Rabbi Dovber, the Maggid of Mezrich, who was both a charismatic leader and a brilliant organizer. He set up a court, like a nobleman, in a place called Mezrich, where he received visitors and presided over events and gatherings. He also dispatched ambassadors across Eastern Europe to establish Hasidic circles and communities wherever they could. There exists no contemporary account or description of the Baal Shem Tov by any objective observer or outsider. But we do have a fascinating account of the court of the Mezrich Magid by a very curious fellow, a man called Solomon Maimon. That's how he was later known. And in this later iteration, Maimon was renowned as a brilliant philosopher in the circle of Moses Mendelssohn. And he wrote countless books that continue to be studied to this day. But as a young man, long before he got to Berlin, as an orphan with a thirst for knowledge and spirituality, he left his birthplace in the Eshevis, Lithuania, and made the long journey to Mezrich. Many, many years later, long after he had abandoned, completely abandoned his observance of mitzvahs, and long after the Mezrich Magid had already passed away, he recalled his first impressions of Mezrich in his autobiography. I'm going to read you a small excerpt of his description of Mezrich, probably in the 1760s. I had a burning desire to join the new group. With bated breath, I made my way to distant Mezrich, the home of the Rebbe, Rabbi Dov Bear. On the Sabbath, I came to a magnificent feast. In the Tzaddik's house was a group of distinguished people from various regions. Later on, the Tzaddik himself appeared in all his glory, a distinguished-looking man. He aroused awesome respect in all the hearts of all who beheld him. He was dressed in white satin with white shoes, even his snuff box was white. After he greeted his guests, we sat at the table. Throughout the meal, a holy silence pervaded. Afterwards, the tzaddik began to sing an uplifting melody. He placed his hand on his brow in contemplation, and then he identified each guest by name and hometown. We were amazed. The tzaddik asked each one of us to say one verse from the Bible. He then proceeded to give a sermon, skillfully combining the various verses into what he said. Even more astoundingly, in the part of the discourse related to our respective verses, we each discovered specific allusions to our private lives and thoughts. This amazed us very much. Even all those years later, listen to what Maimon said, it was the freewheeling spontaneity and the earthiness of the Hasidic approach that stuck out in Solomon Maimon's mind. The variety of different people, the singing, the extemporizing. And it is exactly this that began to annoy more traditional elements of the community as the movement slowly began to spread around Europe and small groups of Hasidim began setting themselves up, echoing the style of the Mezrit Shemagid, who had claimed for himself the leadership mantle of the mystical founder of the movement, the Baal Shem Tov. The oppositionists, by the way, that's what the word mitnagdim, misnagdim means, considered the freewheeling style of Hasidim and their lack of concern for conventions to be the beginnings of a heretical movement and convinced themselves that Hasidism was the latest manifestation of the false messiah movement of Shabtai Tzvi that had caused so much disarray and confusion in Jewish life a century earlier. 
There was also another pseudo-Messianic movement that had emerged in the mid-18th century, centered around a charlatan called Jacob Frank. And despite the fact that the Baal Shem Tov played a critical role in discrediting Frank, many feared that Hasidism had developed strong links with Frankists, who were unquestionably heretics and very dangerous people, and that they were all part of a united danger threatening normative Judaism. Just to be clear, there was not really much of a difference between Hasidim and Misnagdim. I think it's important to know that. All of them, the ordinary ones, not the rabbis, the ordinary Hasidim and the ordinary Misnagdim, were Jews eking out a living in a hostile Christian world, speaking Yiddish to each other, praying to God in Hebrew, believing in one God, praying three times a day, eating kosher, observing the laws of ritual purity. The difference was purely one of approach. Tradition had determined that Jews stick very closely to the strict guidelines of halakha, and those who excelled as Jews focused that excellence on the highly intellectual study of Talmud. The idea that either of these aspects of Judaism could be compromised or substituted was seen by the Misnagdim as dangerous heresy, a radical deviation from tradition that could result in the wholesale destruction of Jewish life as it had been built up over centuries in the diaspora. So what triggered the public pronouncement issued by the Vilniger Arn that I began the lecture with was a meeting that was organized by followers of the Magid. And at that stage, this was a very loose collection of individuals in different places. They came together. It was certainly not a movement or a sect. They wanted to pool their resources to tackle the growing voices of opposition to what they were doing. And that, of course, is the greatest irony of all. The Hasidic movement, or sect, as the Misnagdim called them, didn't exist until they were opposed by the Misnagdim. It was the opposition that forced them together so that they could defend themselves against those attacking them. And the more they came together under one umbrella, the more the Misnagdim felt the need to oppose them. Yes, the Misnagdim created the Hasidim, and the Hasidim created the Misnagdim. It's a tale as old as time. Another popular myth is that the conflict between Misnagdim and Hasidim tore apart the Jewish communities of Europe in the latter decades of the 18th century. No such thing happened. It's a myth. It's not true. Besides for the concerted campaign by the Vilnagon and his supporters in Lithuania, and some associated efforts in Galicia, there were no bans against Hasidim, nor was there a huge growth of Hasidic groups. Those who were attracted to happy, clappy spiritualism continued to stream to Hasidic centers, but the vast majority of Jews in Europe neither opposed them nor supported them. They were largely indifferent, as most people are in every society, to anything which is on the fringe or a little bit extreme. Not that this meant Hasidim and their leaders were held in high esteem, by the way. They are definitely, there are definitely contemporary references to unlearned Hasidim, but that did not mean that they were widely treated as heretics. Which begs the question, why was the Vilna Ga'on so opposed to Hasidim? Let's quickly take a look at who he was and why he was such an important rabbinic personality during that period. His biography is pure hagiography. Born in 1720, he apparently knew Tnach by heart at the age of four. Started studying Talmud at the age of seven. Knew the Talmud by heart by the age of eight. Outpaced his teachers by the time he was 10. Studied and mastered astrology, math, science, algebra, geometry. On his own, in his spare time, and started studying Kabbalah 
immediately after his bar mitzvah. In his late teens, he wandered anonymously from place to place in Europe. He never took an official position in the rabbinate of Vilna, nor anywhere else, and spent most of the remainder of his life in seclusion, praying, studying, and writing. His reputation spread, and visitors and correspondents fought to him from across the Jewish world. He inspired people with his clarity and with his devoutness. When he died in 1797, he was acknowledged as one of the most outstanding rabbinic figures of Europe to have ever lived. I can't tell you how much of that is true or how much of that was made up after the fact. It's not important. That's the biography that we are presented. So why was the Vilna Gaon so opposed to Hasidim? Some scholars want to suggest that he was simply misinformed about what Hasidism actually was, and his opposition was a result of this information, misinformation. That possibility, I have to tell you, cannot be dismissed. As anyone who has ever visited a prominent rabbi knows, the rabbi's view of the outside world is totally filtered through his handlers, who carefully manage who comes in to see him and what they say. And the Vilna Gaon was even more isolated the most. He only ever came into contact with people from his own circle or those who gained access and it wasn't easy. But even so, even though that's the case, this is not enough to explain his vehement and consistent antagonism towards the Hasidim from 1772 until his death 25 years later. Besides for the Misnagdim campaign, his campaign against Hasidim, the Vilna Gaon never publicly pronounced on any other matter concerning Jewish social or religious life as a communal leader. On the contrary, he deliberately avoided it. No doubt, I have no question whatsoever that his handlers and circle tried to involve him in other matters over the years. But he clearly avoided taking a stand on any issue. So why did he take a lead on this matter? And why? Of all the senior and prominent rabbis in Europe at the time, was he the only one to do so? Other scholars have suggested it was because he wanted to stand up for the existing structure of Jewish rabbinical life, which he saw as being threatened by the Hasidim. This also doesn't ring true. After all, the Vilna Gaon was hardly the paradigm of normative rabbinic leadership. If anything, he was more similar to the rather more maverick leadership of the Hasidim. And certainly, you heard his biography a few moments ago, it shares more in common with the Baal Shem Tov than it does with the more conventional rabbinic leaders of his day. Indeed, I think it is this point that explains his opposition. The Vilna Gaon represented a version of Torah scholarship and Kabbalistic piety that he believed was threatened by what he considered an aberrant, diluted version that was being promoted by the Hasidim. The largely hidden elements of Jewish mysticism that underpin the Jewish faith, fundaments of Judaism that are critical to its function and execution, even if they are largely unknown to the average Jew, is not a game to be played with so that you can attract the common folk to Judaism because they don't want to be scholars or don't have the time. The Vilna Gaon was a purist, and particularly because he wasn't a rabbinic hack, part of the establishment, a tool of those people who paid him. He understood the dangers of allowing unscrupulous people whose power would be based on unfounded miraculous powers or deviations from convention to take control of Jewish life. In 1771, rumors of deviant behavior by the Hasidim resulted in the rabbinic authorities of Vilna confiscating some of their manuscripts for examination. The Vilna Gaon was shown the papers, and he apparently declared them to be heresy. 
He said they had misinterpreted certain sections of the Kabbalistic work, the Zohar, in ways that resulted in beliefs that were antithetical to the Jewish faith. No one took any notice. Then, in the winter 1771-1772, there was a terrible epidemic in Vilna. Hundreds of children died, Jewish children. And as you know, the characteristic Jewish response to any terrible tragedy has always been, it remains, introspection, a process of soul-searching. We want to determine what might have resulted in Hashem being angry with us. We're going to try and do teshuva, or whatever that may be. And on this occasion, in early 1772, it was decided that the reason why Hashem was angry with the Jewish community of Vilna was because of a Hasidim in Vilna. They called them Karlinas because they were devoted to the rabbi of Karlin, which is not that far away, it's in Pinsk. And they brought the tragedy onto the community. You have to blame someone, right? The Jews always get blamed by the Gentiles, and the Jews also have to have someone to blame, right? So they had the Hasidim to blame. In addition to this, two leaders of the Hasidic group in Vilna, one was called Reb Isser, the other one was called Reb Chaim, were accused of publicly insulting the Vilna Gaon. Reb Chaim had reacted to the Gaon's indictment of the Hasidic documents by stating that the Gaon was, quote, full of lies, his teachings are lies, and his version of Judaism is a lie. Reb Isser's insults are not recorded for history, but I can assure you they were probably of a very similar nature. The Vilna Bet Din met on Cholomoid Pesach, 1772, to decide what to do with Reb Chaim, and it was decided that the Karlina's little synagogue, the Shtibel, had to close down, that Reb Chaim would have to publicly ask for forgiveness at the main synagogue in Vilna, and that he would have to go and ask forgiveness in front of witnesses from the Vilna Gaon himself. Remarkably, Reb Chaim complied with these demands. He visited the Gaon's house accompanied by 10 witnesses, and the Gaon, who was usually very quiet and soft-spoken, shouted at him and berated him, not, he said, for the personal insult, but for defaming God and the honor of the Torah, a sin, he said, only death could expiate. Soon afterwards, Reb Chaim left Vilna in complete humiliation and was never heard of again. Shortly after Pesach, his colleague, Reb Isser, was similarly examined and judged by the Vilna Basin. His transgression was deemed to be even worse, as he apparently owned Hasidic manuscripts that mandated the deviant practices, such as wild movements during prayer, like somersaults and the use of Yiddish exclamations, oi, oi, in the middle of davening, as a way of intensifying prayer. At this stage, the Gaon was in no mood for compromise. He suggested the expulsion of all Hasidim from Vilna, and when he heard how of Isser had been punished, he objected that the punishment was far too lenient. To us, the punishment hardly seems too lenient. All the Hasidic manuscripts in Vilna were publicly burnt. On a particular day, all the synagogues in Vilna were closed, were shut down, except for one, the main synagogue, and at a prayer service that was attended by every member of the community, Rabbi Issa publicly withdrew his comments, disavowed his Hasidic beliefs, and recited a formula of repentance. Additionally, Letters were sent out to warn other communities of the iniquities of Hasidim. Doesn't sound very lenient, but the Gaon wasn't happy. And we don't like the Vilna Gaon to be unhappy. If you're the Vilna Rabbinate, he's after all very senior. He's not satisfied. So as a result of the disappointment of the Vilna Gaon, Rav Issa was also flogged. And then he was incarcerated in the community jail. When I read this, I was thinking to myself, I'm not aware that in Los Angeles we have a community jail. Are you aware of a Jewish community jail here? It would be a very useful tool, don't you think? In any event, he was incarcerated in the Jewish community jail for a week. And even this was too lenient 
as far as the Vilna Gaon was concerned. And it was against this background that the letter I read to you earlier was sent to the chief rabbi of Breslitovsk. This Reb Chaim and Reb Issa episode was followed a few months later by the death of the Mezritcher Magid. And perhaps the Misnagdim thought the threat of Hasidim had been halted in its tracks. But eight years later, in 1780, the second significant associate of the Baal Shem Tov published the first purely Hasidic work and the volcano erupted all over again. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Katz of Polonoi had been a classic rabbi, very much part of the establishment, a scholar of Talmud and Halakha. But in the early 1740s, he came into the orbit of the Baal Shem Tov and was smitten, immediately smitten. As a result of this association, maybe because his attitude changed, or perhaps, this is my own speculation, because he spent too much time visiting his new teacher, he lost his job as the rabbi of Shargorod, and eventually, after much doing and throwing, he became the rabbi of Polonoi. The book he published in 1780 is called Toldos Yaakov Yosef. We have here an image of the title page. And on the face of it, it was a standard rabbinic work. It contained Divrei Torah on the portions of the week in the order that they appear. It's a standard format. We still use the same format to this day. But this book was very different from the norm. After the Baal Shem Tov died in 1760, and for the next 20 years, while the Mezritcher Magid and his followers were setting up Hasidic centers across Europe, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy had carefully collated all the notes and stories of the Baal Shem Tov that he put together during his teacher's lifetime and edited them into a coherent, organized, powerful manifesto for followers of this alternative system for traditional Judaism that had come to be known as Hasidism. He explained the concept of a holy man, the tzaddik being the center of Jewish life, rather than a rabbi employed by the community. He shared the ideas of enthusiastic prayer and of embracing your human self as opposed to trying to become an angel devoid of material desires. But besides for gushing enthusiastically about the Barshemtov's innovative ideas, he also condemned the establishment for promoting Talmud scholarship and mindless halachic conformity as the only perfect model of Judaism. This book, once again, ignited the Vilna Gaon against Hasidim, and this time he issued an even more severe letter against the Hasidim in which he said, I'm reading you a quotation from the letter, and here is an image of the document itself. I write to you regarding the book which the rabbi of the community of Polonoi, Yaakov Yosef, has written. His purpose is to entice all of Israel to walk in the ways of the followers of the Baal Shem Tov, but they do not walk in the path of our holy Torah. Their main goal is to destroy the study of Torah, whether it be the Talmud or Kabbalah, which they claim are unnecessary. This book is fit to be burnt. The mild-mannered Vilna Gaon, encouraging book burning, and burnt it was in several communities. In fact, as a book collector, I can tell you, it remains one of the rarest late 18th century first edition rabbinic books. And when it does appear at auction, it sells for tens of thousands of dollars, while other books from this era can be obtained for a couple of hundred dollars. The letter from the Vilna Gaon was followed almost immediately by an all-encompassing ban on Hasidim endorsed by the Vilna Gaon. You are not allowed to marry Hasidim nor pray with Hasidim. Their bread was forbidden. It's trade. You mustn't eat their bread. Their wine, you're not allowed to drink their wine. They had to be ejected. They had to be banished. 
But if the first ban was ineffective, this one was even less successful. Although other communities besides for Vilna officially adopted it, Hasidic groups continued to operate openly, to proliferate, and seemingly to thrive. I want to end today's lecture with a final anti-Hasidic episode involving the Vilna Gaon, which took place in the year 1796, and which actually started off quite comically. It demonstrates the newfound confidence of the Hasidim, who despite 25 years of organized opposition, continued to grow and expand into new territory, unhindered by the formal and intense opposition of the greatest rabbi of the day. It appears that by this time, the Hasidim felt enough confidence to even make fun of the Vilna Gaon and to make him look ridiculous. Now, on several occasions in the past, rumors had emerged that the Vilna Gaon had retracted his hostility towards Hasidim, rumors that were always denied. One day, the ailing and elderly Vilna Gaon, by now he was in his late 70s, was informed that there was a man who's visiting communities in Germany, together with a little boy, holding his hand, and that the man was masquerading as the Vilna Gaon's son. And he would arrive in a community, look really depressed, sit at the back of shul, was very reluctant to talk, that when he did talk, he would cry inconsolably, telling everybody that his father, the Vilna Gaon, bitterly regretted his opposition to Hasidism, to Hasidim, and that the Vilna Gaon was now saying, and this is a direct quote, okay, how will I ever be able to repent for all the aggravation I caused these wonderful people? If only I, would, I were younger, I would fast and pray and cry all day for all the terrible things I've done and said about Hasidim. And I would travel from place to place, encouraging people in every community to join them so that they can worship God properly. We don't know who this man was, nor the child, nor why people were so gullible that they believed him. He was evidently a very good actor and had people convinced. Because one thing is for certain, he was not the Vilnagan's son. And the whole thing was a publicity stunt for the Hasidim, who must have been highly amused that anyone had fallen for this guy's charade. Now, eventually, the fellow ended up in Hamburg, where he was introduced to the rabbi, Rabbi Rafal Hamburger, who I spoke about in my lecture last year in London. Rabbi Rafal Hamburger actually learnt with the Vilnagan, and he was in regular correspondence with the circle of the Vilnagan, and he immediately exposed the man as a fraud. This bit's not so nice. The man was taken out of the shul and beaten up by a mob who were very, very angry. And he was run out of town. He was never seen again. When the Vilnagan heard about this story, he was very angry. It's personal, right? Very humiliating. And he wrote the most vituperative letter against the Hasidic movement and its devotees. He called them a wicked sect. And he instructed everyone to persecute them mercilessly and to redouble their efforts to get rid of them. This is a quote from his letter. They are like a boil on the body of Israel. Hopefully, we'll be able to uproot their name from this world. The Hasidim smelt blood, and a group of them from Minsk published a letter which claimed that this latest letter of the Vilna Gaon was a forgery, and he'd never said any of the things that were written in it. Immediately, 
the Gaon issued an even more aggressive letter, and he wrote as follows. It is impossible to recall all the sins of the Hasidim in writing, he wrote, as there is not enough paper to write them all down. They are guilty of misleading the common people and leading them like lambs to the slaughter, he added. Satan has forced his way among the scattered flock of Israel and caused confusion among them. But the Vilna Gaon was far from confused. In fact, he was infused with certainty. These idiots who have sown so much evil should be publicly reprimanded with whips and scorpions and brought to reason. No man among you shall have any pity on them. But within a year, the Vilna Gaon was dead. He died in 1797. And the Misnagdim had lost their A-lister, while the Hasidim were only just getting started, as their leaders gained more acclaim and greater recognition, both within the Jewish community and among the Gentiles. One might wonder whether the Vilna Gaon's efforts against the Hasidim was worth staking his reputation over. As I've already mentioned, the opposition to Hasidism lacked depth in terms of the accusations against them. This was hardly a Shabtai Tzvi situation, nor was it a Jacob Frank situation. Groups of people governing louder than they should, singing merrily, drinking a bit of vodka, focusing on esoteric aspects of Judaism rather than clinical intellectual Talmud study, cannot easily be construed as heresy, even if you don't particularly want to join that kind of group or do that kind of stuff. And no testimony ever emerged of serious aberrations, as was the case with many of the other crazy stories that peppered the 18th century that I've covered in my book and in some of my lectures that you've attended. But perhaps the Vilna Gaon's opposition did do more than can be easily proved from historical events. Perhaps some of the wilder elements of Hasidic behavior and practice from that early period were reined in. Perhaps their trajectory out of normative Judaism would have happened in the generations that followed, but was diverted back towards acceptable behavior as a result of the checks and balances that the Vilna Gaon insisted upon, even if the checks and balances that were used were not quite as extreme as he was hoping for. What is certain is that the lack of Jewish learning and knowledge among ordinary Jews was something that the Vilna Gaon realized needed to be addressed, which was why his foremost student, Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin, founded Volozhin Yeshiva, the powerhouse institute of Jewish learning that was open to students of any background. And of course, Volozhin Yeshiva will be the focus of my next lecture. But for tonight, that's all there is. Thank you.